Not yet? There we are, all right. Hey, let me break everything just really quickly um, and take the opportunity to give a save the date reminder. Um, so just yesterday I got an email confirming that the date for our annual men's camp has been confirmed. So men of the church, if you would like to come to men's camp, which we call man camp later in the year, the dates are going to be the, um, the 17th to the 18th of March. It's a Friday night. We, we get there Friday afternoon. We leave Saturday lunchtime. So if, you've, um, if you're planning your year ahead, please keep the 17th to the 18th of March free uh, for man camp. All right, sermon time. Uh, we've been in a bit of a series across the course of January, haven't we? Those of you who've been coming along for the month would know, a series about finding our rest in Jesus and living out from that place. Uh, it's a good time of the year for us to be talking about these things when, when routines are simpler than they might be at other times of the year. Um, those of you with children at home who haven't been going to school are probably thinking simpler my butt, but that's okay. Um, there's, there's just less things on. Uh, and so it's a good opportunity for us to do that, that reset, that, that, that opportunity to get healthy rhythms in place to, to find that place of rest in Jesus. The big, the big picture of the Christian life is that ultimately we find our rest in our salvation by faith in Jesus. It's there that we who are Christians have trusted in the Savior, we have found forgiveness we have been reconciled to God, and that is our ultimate rest. That is the largest sense of the meaning of rest. It is the most important sense of the meaning of rest. However, that is not the end of the story of what rest means for the Christian. No, that's the beginning of our new lives with Jesus, which are going to continue and grow and mature and overflow into eternity. The ideal is, our hope is, the best version of life lived here on earth is, a life where that rest in Jesus shapes the rest of our lives. It's the most important thing about us. Um, God is continuing to give us the, the peace of a saving faith in all of the small details of life, not just in our ultimate destination. Now, God is confusing. I think, I think we have all experienced that uh, at various points during our lives. And one of the things that makes him confusing is that he is quite simply different to anyone else we will ever meet. There is no one else like him. He's unique. Um, in our God, in our Jesus, we find the perfect meeting of grace and truth, for example. The perfect meeting of grace and truth. Um, grace, kindness, treating us more generously than we deserve, and truth, an utterly unwavering, unbending standing on what is good and right and what he intended for us to understand about this world. Both his gracious, graciousness and his truthfulness, in reality, lead us into his rest. His, his grace, for example, leads us to rest. That's what was leading us in week one of this series when we talked about how God's great might gives us rest because his might is being used to preserve us and to protect us, that he is our fortress and our strong place. Last week... We heard a warning where his truth led us to rest because there was a warning there that told us it's possible to miss out on that rest and so do not harden your heart. And so both his grace and his truth are working together with the ultimate goal in mind that we would not just know that this rest is available, that we would not just give some kind of mental assent to the idea that it could exist or that it should exist, but rather that we would experience it, that we would draw near to God and find comfort and find strength 
which he shares with us in the details of our life. This grace and this truth are not opposite forces, they're working together. In today's passage, we're, we're looking at a, another one, a bit more like the first week. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the gentle passages. In fact, it is one of the most tender passages in the Bible. Because today, we're going to be talking about resting from the anxiety of life through our faith in Jesus. Resting from the anxiety of life through our faith in Jesus. And to get there, we're going to be reading a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Probably the best sermon ever preached. I can say confidently the best sermon ever preached. Nobody preaches better than Jesus. Um, We are looking in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, it would be well worth your time to read along with us. And here's the thing about this passage, starting in Matthew 6, verse 25. Is that this, this... I think the technical word is pericope. I'm not entirely certain what that means. It's spelt pericope, but I think that's funny. This section of the sermon begins with uh, a thought, which if we are to remove it from its context, would be, in my opinion, the least helpful thing that Jesus has ever said. Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, if we were to rob that verse from its context, if we were to take it and to put it on a coffee mug, I don't think the result would be, all on its own, encouragement. I think it would be irritation. Jesus said, do not be anxious. Well, thank you, Jesus. Why didn't I think of that? Right? Removed from, removed from the rest of the sermon, this is, this, is, uh, this is a rod for our back, which is why we need to keep reading, and this is where we find how merciful Jesus is being to us. So let's read the whole passage. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed, which just means clothed, like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
mean, now this is a passage that's very special in the Maloney household. Our youngest daughter, Lily, is named after this part of the Sermon on the Mount quite intentionally because she is a daily reminder to us that our Father knows our needs before we ask. Here's the thing about this this portion of the sermon. If this is true, if Jesus is right, if this is going to have its full effect in me, the destination that it's going to lead me to, what I get out of this is comfort and rest and peace. And I want those things. I want to hear what Jesus has to say to me to relieve me from the anxieties of the burdens of everyday life. The the problem he is describing is a real one, the anxiety over what we will eat, what we will wear, over food and shelter are real things. They're really significant problems. Those are the basic essentials of life, and Jesus is promising us something which is good news that God has a plan to provide for us, that if we can trust it, if we can trust, more specifically, him, will release us from unnecessary and unhelpful anxiety. That sounds like good news to me. And to get us there, Jesus describes what uh, we could say is a doctrine by the name of, and this word, if you haven't heard it before, is your new best friend, the doctrine of providence. God's, God's sovereignty, the, the idea that God is, is ruling and reigning over all of his creation and no one can oppose his will, that he does what he wants, has some very concrete applications in our life, two really, that are most important to us. God saves who he wants, that's the first one. Perhaps we're more familiar with that. And yet providence is the other. Providence is the idea that God actively governs his creation. God actively governs his creation. And what's more than that, there is a special meaning of providence, which is his special provision for his children as the one who governs all things in creation. Providence, it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word. This passage that we've just read reasons from God's providence to our rest in the seasons of life, no matter what they hold. There's a connection between the two, and so we need to understand this providence in order to obtain this rest. So that's our goal this morning. Why don't we look more closely at what it means? Providence part one. God governs his creation. He governs his creation. I cannot say this more beautifully than it has already been said. You can find many definitions of providence if you were to go and search for it on the internet, but some of them from history are particularly helpful. And of, amongst all of them, um, there is a thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a teaching tool written in Germany in the 1500s in which the idea of providence is described and defined, and it doesn't just do it well technically. What's so special about the Heidelberg Catechism here is it says it beautifully. This is a warm-hearted description of the meaning of providence. Check this out. I'll get it up on the screen so you can read along. I don't know if I made it big enough. Is there another slide with the catechism on it? That's it. Yep, too small. My fault. I'll read it out to you. 
A catechism is a, is a, is a teaching tool which is, is, is in the form of a series of questions and answers which are meant to be memorized in order to teach you theology. And the question asked here, question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism is this, what do you understand by the providence of God? And this is the answer. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Isn't that gorgeous? Oh, for that to be true. This is the biblical doctrine of providence. This is what Jesus is bringing our attention to in his sermon. This idea of providence, this idea that God is governing his creation, contrasts with most of the worldviews available to us today. It's not what is sort of sitting in the waters of culture. This is not the assumption that most of us bring to our ideas of how the world works. And so it's not surprising then that when we find ourselves wrestling with the details of life, that anxiety is, is all too common. In atheistic modernity, for example, the first cause of all things is, is the Big Bang. And everything that's happening from that point forward is just a series of, of consequences following on from what has happened before according to random chance. There's no ultimate driving purpose or hand. Atoms are bouncing off one another at random. And in the multitude of unlikely outcomes and mathematically impossible to predict things, over the course of billions of years, there was some fish who decided one day to crawl out of the ocean and breathe air instead. Uh, and now here we are. This, this view of the world is what gives rise to ideas like chaos theory or the butterfly effect, which sometimes you see in the movies, it's the easiest way to describe it, where people travel back in time and they change one detail of history and then travel back to the, the present day and everybody's a lizard and we all eat soap. Right. Because the random collision of atoms is directing the course of the universe. And so if you change one thing in the past, you change the outcomes of the future, and if you believe this, if you believe something even close to this, you believe that you live in a world where all is chaos. Life is random and unpredictable. It is unguided and it is ultimately meaningless. And yet, this is probably the most common view in our culture today of the meaning of life. There's a spiritualized version of it a Christianized version of it. There is the view, for example, of, of non-interventionist deism. I like to say things like that so I sound more intelligent than I am. Which says that, yeah, there's probably a God. There's an original creator who, who made the universe and got everything going. He set the ducks up in a row, and then he sort of just withdrew to let things play out how they would. God might be watching us from a distance, but life is playing itself out according to natural causes and according to our decisions without any ongoing involvement from a higher power. While there is a higher power, he does not actively govern his creation. And in many ways, this view is a lot like the previous view, except for the d d distinction, I suppose, that things have an original designer who kind of 
who flicked the first atom off at the right sort of degree of angle and got the chain reaction going, and now the reaction is driving itself. God is uninvolved. The ducks are lining up how they will. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the view of uh, the, the Douglas Adam Express, the, the English author of the series of books called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He described it like this. He said, in the beginning, the universe was created, and this made a lot of people very angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move. That's, that's, not, me, that's not helpful. I just thought it was funny. Actually, there's also a, a, a confused, and perhaps maybe a better word would be unconsidered, Christian approach to viewing the details of life, where perhaps we believe in God and where we even believe in God's ongoing action in the world. We believe in an interventionist God. But because we can't understand the mechanics of how these things could possibly work, because it's really complicated and even, I would say, painful to reconcile all of the suffering in this world with the idea that there is a God sovereignly guiding all things. A God who is in charge of everything, and yet a world that is falling apart. Instead of trying to, to sit with that tension or to reconcile it, we give up trying to fit them together, and we simply don't think about it. Perhaps this one's very common in the church. It's too hard. It's too painful. It's too complicated. And it's maybe even too scary to think about these things. I'll trust God in general, we think to ourselves. I know I have faith in him, but I don't know that I can make any confident connections between his providence and my specific situation and my tests and trials and troubles today. That'll be easier, we think. You see, what all these views have in common is that they rob their adherents of any chance of laying hold to the blessing of what Jesus is describing in his Sermon on the Mount. In order for us to know the rest that Jesus is trying to deliver us in regards to unnecessary anxieties, we need to lay hold of Jesus' view of the world. And dare I suggest to a room full of Christians, we should believe his view of the world. Brothers and sisters, you can be certain that the Bible teaches the doctrine of providence. It's, it's not subtle. It is not infrequent. It is definitely there. Regardless of what tensions we find it difficult to reconcile, regardless of what unanswered questions we might have in regards to how this all works out, we have to begin with the belief that this is what God wants us to understand. It's all over the Bible. Can I, can I just show you right now the briefest selection <laughs> of places in the Bible before this sermon where God has revealed this to us. Let me show you a few. And let's pull out just exactly what is being claimed. Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7 has this to say to us. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is not mere poetry. When you leave this building today and you feel the wind blow in your face, your Bible is telling you 
that God made that happen. It is according to the counsel of his will. The rain and the wind and the clouds and the seas and the deeps are conforming to the will of God. This is a big God we're describing. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 to 11, tell us this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. (laughs) Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The next time you are outside and you look up and you see a bird of prey. I have a, I have a passing interest in birding and I, I quite like it when I see a raptor flying around. It's a, it's a good day when that happens. What should be going through my mind when I see that creature is that it is not riding on the currents of chance. It has come from its origination to its destination on the will of God. We turn to um, the chapter of the Bible found in Job 38. There's a hundred examples of God explaining this to Job. It's one of those passages, and I've pulled out just a few. How about this, verses 8 to 11 of Job 38? Who shut in the sea with doors? when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. The next time you go to the beach, (laughs) it's summertime, we can do that. It's a nice time to do it. You watch the waves rolling in across the the top of the ocean, heading towards the sand, and eventually they reach a point where they stop and roll back. You have seen the will of God displayed. This far you shall come and no further. It's precise, isn't it? Again, we're asked in verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten drops of dew? And the answer to that question is, the Lord our God is the father of the dew drops. They're conforming to the pattern of his will. Who cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? Where the rain falls and where the rain does not fall is according to the ongoing providence of God. He is governing his creation down to that degree of detail. It's impossible to imagine, isn't it? Who found a way for the thunderbolt? The Lord our God did. Every bolt of lightning which has ever or will ever come into existence in the sky is not there as a mere chemical reaction following the path of chance. It has been sent by an involved creator. The laws of physics only work because God wills them to be so. 
And on those occasions where he does not will them to be so, they are not. Job 38, verse 31. Everything that we've just looked at really has a thing in common, which is that God's providence is working in the micro details of life. The, the, the flight of birds, the places where the ocean stops here on earth, the, the whether or not um, the waves can come this far on the land or not further. God is governing his creation right down to the smallest of details. He is in charge. And in verse 31, we go right out the other end and we look up to the heavens and God asks us, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? And if you haven't picked it up, he is speaking about the constellations in the sky, the position of the stars in the universe. Can you, do un- can you undo or undo Orion's belt? God is claiming, I can. Those stars are there because I will them to be. I mean, in, in, the, in the scientific debates that exist between um, atheists and theists outside of the world of church, in the academic world, increasingly so, people are having to admit that life here on Earth is so very unlikely. Were the moon a few meters closer? Were the sun to drift? Were the, were the, were the existence of Saturn absorbing with its gravity all of the, the asteroids? I'm going to get those words right because they mean different things depending on where they are in space, and I'm not that guy. Were things not as perfectly the way they were, how could our earth sustain life, they ask? I can tell you how. Because it's there by design. And not just by an original design, but by the ongoing providence of its creator. From the macro to the micro, the big and the small, from the impossibly big to the impossibly small, Our God, who is an intelligence far beyond our own comprehension, is governing his world. It is inescapable that this is the biblical view of our creation. Our main passage here today in the Sermon on the Mount has two very specific applications that Jesus wants to bring to our mind. He points our attention to two things, both of them at the micro level. He brings our attention to sparrows and to flowers. Both sparrows and flowers have been particularly relevant to my weekend. Just yesterday, we had the joy of going to the the wedding of Jackson and Jess in Toowoomba, and Toowoomba is rightly called the city of flowers. Gorgeous place. If you were to try and count the agapanthers in the city of Toowoomba, it would be like trying to count the stars, I would imagine. There is no shortage. The birds of the air, Jesus draws our attention to as well. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. Do, we need to, like, do I need to allow this moment to take place mid-sermon where we all like, willingly look away and look out the window and see if we can see probably a manky pigeon because we're too close to the city? Look at them. Did you drive past a sparrow today? Have you seen a magpie? Crow, that bird doesn't sow or reap. Birds, not so, I don't know if you know this about birds, not so great at farming. Yeah, not, not particularly efficient when it comes to building storehouses. Sometimes they chuck stuff in the hole in the tree. It's about as close as they get. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Which means that every bird that you have ever seen in in your entire life got its breakfast from God that morning. Not by random chance. Verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing, Jesus says. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Do they toil or spin? I don't know if you know this about lilies, but amongst all of the different kinds of flowers which exist, lilies are notorious for their inability to create clothing. Not so great at cotton, the lilies. And yet I tell you that even Solomon, the richest king of Israel to ever have existed, perhaps the richest man to ever have existed, in all of his glory, was not clothed like one of them. It is God, verse 30, who clothes the grass of the field. This is the first part of understanding providence. Seeing that God is intimately governing all of his creation, the world is not ruled by random chance. There is no such thing as fate or coincidence. God governs his creation. The world is supernatural, and that means that if you are here today, it is the Lord God who brought you here. You are here on purpose. It was not a coincidence. God wants you to hear this promise. This is where it starts to get real. He is, even now, intervening in your life and communicating to you that you would know how he guides your life. And all of this brings us to the second part of providence, which we need to understand. Not only does our sovereign God providentially govern all of his creation, he does not do so with equity. Equal outcomes for all at all times. Nope. God is bending the universe towards a purpose. He, he's meddling with an outcome in mind. God is governing his creation towards the goal of blessing his children. God's providence is his government of all things, but God's providence is also his special concern for those who belong to him. Do you feel God's affection when you read these words? Matthew 6, 26, when we consider the birds. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? How do you, did you need to take a moment to answer that question? Do you realize, Christians, you are of more value to your God than the birds of the air? What about verse 30? If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Much more. Are you a little faith? 
What Jesus is trying to impress upon us here is not just a trust that God is big and strong and is ill-defined governing his creation. That's not where the rest comes from. It's, It's an important detail. No, it's that that big, strong, almighty God intends to meet your needs. And no one in heaven or on earth can stop him. He knows them before you even ask. God blesses his children. This doesn't mean a life without suffering. It doesn't mean a life without challenge. It means everything he sees as a need is met. And he is governing this world with your ultimate blessing in mind. I mean, we had a whole sermon on this not that long ago, didn't we? It was, it was Mike who described to us a universe which has a tilt to it, a lean that all of creation is bent towards the redemption, salvation, and blessing of God's people. We heard it in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28 is true because what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is true. It was King David who wrote this. The Lord is my shepherd, not just my creator. My shepherd, I shall not want, meaning I will have everything I need. Where does his confidence come from? Because I know who he is, and because I know his view of me, I must conclude that he cares about my needs, and that despite what challenges and difficulties lie in front of me, I have to be certain. There is no other right conclusion that I will have all I need. Which is why he also says in that same psalm, you, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, how could it be any other way? How could I reach another conclusion? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, writes the man who lived a life of suffering and war. I don't know if you've recently read the story of King David's life, but it was tumultuous. Tumultuous. The king of Israel made it his personal mission to kill him as an individual. Often. Surely, David concludes, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Isn't it a shame that we have come to associate that psalm with funerals where it has so much to say, of course, and yet its meaning is so rich in this life also? Tell me, Christians, is this your view of God? Not only only that he rules and reigns, but that specifically he clothes us. It is he who feeds us. The reason we say grace each day, even though it was probably not Jesus who cooked the meal for you, 
was that we believe it was him who provided it for you. It was by his will you ate today. He has regard for us. Now that's a lot. But just for a moment, think about what that changes in life. If we come to life with the assumptions of our culture that all is random, that all is chance, that all is impossible to understand, we will lack something that Jesus intends for us to have. But if I woke up this morning and I believed that the reason I woke up this morning was because my God is caring for me, that he intends to bless me, that he is intimately involved and is leading me on purpose. It will change everything. It will change how I rest. Do you understand? Ask yourself this question. What do I seek first? What do I seek first? This is what Jesus said in verse 33. He tells us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first. This is the conclusion. The war that Jesus is entering into in our hearts today is a wrestle over what we will seek first. Each and every one of our hearts will seek first something. There is a priority, there is a need, there is an ultimate goal driving your life. And Jesus wants to make sure that that goal, the thing which you are seeking first, is him and his kingdom and the assurance that all the details will take care of themselves. Such a useful phrase, to seek first. For example, it's, it's not saying that as Christians, we give up altogether on seeking food and shelter. No, you do have to seek them. We still take responsibility for those things. We actively pursue them. We as Christians, we still need to be disciplined in saving and in living within our means. The difference between what Jesus is describing here and what everybody else does is a difference of who or what we worship. Those who worship Jesus I'm sorry, those who do not worship Jesus do not seek first the kingdom. Jesus tells us, for example, that the Gentiles, meaning the unbelieving nations and peoples, those who do not have faith in him, seek first food and shelter. They seek these things, he tells us. And by seeking them, he means they pursue them without the comfort of God's promises. They pursue them as their highest goal in life. For many people, these earthly concerns are the ultimate driving force behind their entire lives. There is a way to do life where the pursuit of material security becomes the highest meaning in life. There is a temptation in life to live through the lens of financial planning. We start life with the question, what house do I want to have? And then we work backwards from there to what life am I going to live? 
I want this house, it will cost this much, so I am going to need to have this kind of career to earn this kind of money, and my wife is also going to have to have this kind of career and earn this kind of money, and we're going to have to outsource the raising of the children to somebody else because we can't afford that mortgage on one wage, and so we won't also have much in the way of free time. We will have little to share with others in generosity. And now maybe at the end of my life, I have some leftovers that I might consider giving to God. You can live your life like that very easy. You will be in the mainstream. That's normal. That is how the nations live. There are plenty of people today in churches living like this. They are seeking first the things of this earth, and God is getting the leftovers. Many of us here can remember a time in our lives when that was true of us. Many more of us can remember being tempted to live that way every day. Some of you perhaps are there right now. We are fortunate to have been blessed with your company this morning. The sad irony the sad irony of that kind of life is that in chasing those things first, you forego the peace of God. You forego the blessing of God. You forego the ultimate good that comes through seeking his kingdom first. And you miss the promise. If you do life the other way around, if you seek first the kingdom and put godly priorities first, if you seek to honor him in the way that you live and in the way that you plan and in how you use your time and in how you use your wallet, he has promised all these things will be added to you. The house might be smaller. It might not even exist. You might miss out on the jet ski. You will have what you need and you will have the best kind of life kind of life where the first thing that you pursue is the kingdom and its righteousness. And God takes care of the details. Yes, we work for them, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Do you feel the difference? Can I ask you a question? What would change in your life this year if you were to seek First, the kingdom of God. What would change? I can't answer that question for you. But what plans would change? What, what spending habits would change? How would your calendar be altered? And when you think of that thing, do you think of it with worry? With grief? like that would be a missing out? Or do you realize the joy it would bring? Let's pray. Father, the way in which we live has a lot to say about our view of you. And I must confess that there is something in my heart which is too slow to believe in your goodness your kindness and in your providential care for me and my family. I know in my head, Lord, as I, as I read these things, it is, it is inescapable for those of us who trust your word 
that this is how it must be. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. Surely. It is a certainty. And Lord, all of my anxiety, (laughs) all of my worry, all of my distress over these things is wasted energy. I want to live the healthy life, the balanced life, the well-ordered life, where I take responsibility for these things as an adult and I plan for them wisely, where I am a good steward of the gifts which you have given to me, but where I do not worship them and where I am not anxious, where my... (laughs) My reserves of emotional energy each day are being put to better use in seeking after you and in obtaining your blessing. There is something in my heart, my Father, which believes that I will find rest in the work of my own hands, in what I can produce and in what I can obtain. And Father, that is futile. It is futile for me to place my trust in things which are ultimately beyond my control, in things which can be taken from me, in things which are temporary and passing away. Lord, you were right. I have never yet managed to add an hour to my span of life by being distressed. In fact, my doctors tell me I'm probably doing a good job at shortening it. Rescue me from this foolishness. And in its place, O Lord my God, give me your peace and your rest. Give me the joy and the satisfaction of the God-centered life. Convince me, O God, in my heart of hearts, that to draw the nearest to you that I can is the best life that I can live. And that you know my needs and will provide for me and for my family all the days of my life. Lord, my list of things which go in the need category versus the want category is different to your list of things. And so give me your eyes for life. Help me to trust that you are not only almighty God, the sustainer and creator of all things, but that you are my Father who knows my needs and who is bent towards blessing his children. We don't trust you enough but we have every reason to, our God. Increasing from today onwards, our Father, would you help us to obtain your peace, to live in your rest, the rest which saves us, but the rest which guides our steps. Would you be God? of my plans and of my bank account and of my clothing 
and of my food. We pray in the name of Jesus, in whom we see the clearest demonstration available to us of your kindness towards us. You who has given us your son, how could you not also along with him gladly give us all things? In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to